Welcome to Roman's Road, the podcast of me, Eddie Roman. This is where we talk about evangelism and apologetics and all kinds of Christian stuff. Hey, welcome back. This is part two of our interview with Jay Smith. If you have not heard part one yet, go ahead and keep listening to this episode, and then you're going to want to go back and listen to part one. It's not in chronological order. You do not need to listen to that one before you listen to this one. You'll be able to understand this one just fine. But in part one, Jay gets into a lot of the Islamic worldview. That is just how Muslims tend to think, how they see Christianity coming from their perspective. So it is a really good thing to know. If anything, if you care about Muslim people, You should care at least a little bit about their worldview and where they're coming from. So part one is a a great way just to learn a little bit in a short amount of time, and it's going to help you as you preach the gospel to your Muslim friends and neighbors. Just a little fair warning, this was recorded at Huntington Beach on the beach outside with the California wind rushing through our hair, at least uh, what's left of my hair. So there's a little wind noise here and there. But when you hear that, don't get annoyed. Just close your eyes and imagine a seagull floating by. It's beautiful. Now, before we get into the interview here, I just want to mention um, Sunday nights at Faith Bible Church, we are still doing our worldview series. If you live near Murrieta, California, and you're interested in the abortion issue... That is, you care about all the human beings that are being murdered every day legally in America, and you're not okay with that. Well, there's something you can do about it. You can get informed. There's a great website called abort73.com. That's the word abort, the number 73.com, abort73.com. This website deals thoroughly with abortion arguments and how to answer them. And the man behind the website, Michael Spielman, he's going to be the speaker this Sunday night at 6 p.m. at Faith Bible Church. So if you live within driving distance to Marietta, California, this Sunday, I want you to get up, get off your couch, unplug your eyes from your computer or your phone, and come and listen to a real live human being and actually see him in person. You know, get equipped and get motivated to do something. God uses normal Christians to do great things. He can use you to actually save lives in the area of abortion. So, for more information, go to faith-bible.net, click on the Worldview banner, and if you show up, make sure you say hi to me. I'll be one of the guys on the panel, the Q&A panel at the end of the night, answering questions. And then after that, I will be hanging out out front, um, probably eating a cookie, or whatever it is the church doth bring forth that night. They always bring something good, and I'm going to be eating it, whatever it is. So you'll find me out there. Um, Come up and say hi. Okay, enough of this announcement stuff. Um, This announcement isn't going to even matter after October 27, 2019. So let's get on with the reason this podcast episode exists. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my interview with Jay Smith, a man who has devoted his life to reach Muslims with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are the main issues that American Christians should have in mind 
when they go to explain the gospel to a Muslim? Yeah, I think here in America, especially more so than what we had in Britain, you're going to come across much more nominal Muslims. You're not going to get the radical Muslims that we have in London, of which the majority are radical in London. I have found living here two years, so I'm not an expert on America. Yeah. Uh, I have, but in the two years that I've been here, I have been going around from church to church, from conference to conference, over and over. What I'm hearing from everybody that does work with Muslims, and that's where I go. I spend time with people who do work with Muslims. What okay. they're telling me is that the vast majority of Muslims here are, have come here for economic reasons or for educational reasons. Some have been brought up here, but most of them are foreigners. Uh, they tend to be people from Pakistan or Bangladesh or India, Arabs as well. And uh, they <coughs> tend to keep, keep to themselves. Okay. They're much more insular here than what we would have in Britain. In Britain, on every major um, main street of every city, you will find book tables, Islamic book tables. Uh, you will see them uh, speaking. At, at the Pico Corner, they take over the corner. They're only 10% of the population of London, and yet, well, 10% is quite a bit. I mean, there are a million Muslims right. in London, but at Speaker's Corner, they're 90% of the people at Speaker's Corner, which suggests to me that they love oral orality. They love speaking. Okay. They tend not to read books, and we have found that giving them tracts they don't read. They usually throw them away. If you give them tracts, you'll find them on the street about 100 yards later, or often in the, in the, in the, the, can, the bins, what you call um, your trash cans. Right. So I, I, do, I wouldn't worry too much about literature for Muslims. Hmm. You need to talk to them. That's where you in, can engage them. So some of the pointers I would say for those of you who are, because of the fact that you're going to be coming across nominal Muslims, you're going to have the same problems you would have with nominal Christians or nominal anybody. That is trying to get into a religious discussion to begin with, to get them to talk even about theology or Jesus or the Bible. And that's why the easiest people to work with are the radicals. Yeah, you know, I, I do notice that when I, when I watch the videos, um, and, and what, what is your YouTube channel called again? Fander Films, P-F-A-N-D-E-R Films. Okay. So it's Pfander, you might say. It's a P-F, German spelling, because the man was German who it's named after. Okay, and so when I watch your videos, I, I do see that you are constantly talking to a lot of Muslims who seem to know quite a bit about their their Quran and their background. And, and Well, not so much their Quran, but they do know an awful lot about the Bible. Okay. That's what's fascinating. What I do see is these are guys who are, who are excited to talk to Christians about Islam, and I've, I've never really seen that over here. They're, you know, down in Balboa Park in San Diego, I will see a guy... A Muslim who sets up a literature table and he tries to engage people as they walk by, but I have never really encountered a, a Muslim who is actively wanting to talk to me about Jesus Christ. And so, so what you're saying is it probably because I've just run into nominal Muslims who are just and trying to because you live in America. Yeah. America, there, there are I'm told eight million Muslims here, mm -hmm. but in a country of 300 million, that's that's yeah. minuscule. And they tend to stick together. They tend to be in their own enclaves. They tend to be very insular. And they tend to be more, much more middle-class Muslims, not very poor Muslims, like we have in Britain. And in many of, of European countries, because many of those who are coming in now are the refugees. And the refugees are the poorest of the poor. And they're fleeing for, some of them for economic reasons, but all, a lot of them for persecution mm -hmm. because of, and just destruction of their countries by Islam. 
Right. And those are probably the most open. Let me just make a warning here about working with refugees. What we're finding, I, uh, I do an awful lot of work with uh, the Amish Mennonites in okay. Lancaster County. Mm -hmm. uh, they have, have a whole ministry to uniquely Muslims, refugees. And they have teams that go to Lesbos in Greece, where they work with Muslims there. The other, they have also teams that are in large cities like Lancaster, well, that's semi-large city, and New York where they're working with refugees who've come to America. And they here find that it's diametrically different depending if you're in America or if you're there in Greece. And the re what they're saying is in places like Lesbos or Greece where there's, there's that hundreds of thousands of refugees stuck there, they have nowhere to go. They've all come from Turkey, via, via Turkey from Syria and Jordan and whatnot. Right. And interesting, a lot from Pakistan too. What are the Pakistanis doing there? That's another whole other story. But what they have found is those in places, refugee camps, big refugee camps, they are open to the gospel, hmm. absolutely open to the gospel. Once they get to the States, they're no longer interested in the gospel. Really? And that's something we need to be aware of. And that has an awful lot to do with need. Sure. Their needs are different. And they assume that if they, be, if they learn what Christianity is about and become a Christian, they can get into America easier. Okay. That's the reason. Yeah, they can get sense. that green card. They can become stay in America easier. Once they get here and there's no need now to uh, for Americans to get them in, they, there's no need to be a Christian anymore. And we're finding that Amish Mennonites are telling me what I've already known. We've always known this, and uh, this is the case with every refugee program. Refugees are exciting to work with as long as they're refugees. Hmm. Once they become nationals, they want nothing more to do with Christianity because they see that as a ticket to a need to an end. And that's, an under, that's unfortunate that it's that way, but just a warning for those of you who will want to, I, I've, got, I've had so many Americans that want to just work with refugees because there's so much success there. Yeah. All the stories are rosy. And of course they are. Initially they are. It's much the same problem that my imams are telling me when they go to the prisons and they find that Christians become Muslims in prisons all the time, as long as they're in prison. Once they leave the prison and get back, once they're out of there, they finish their term, they just go right back to not being Christians, but just to being, you know, the, the same old uh, secular individual they were before they went right. in. But they need to use Islam for protection. They need Islam um, to also, they have a lot more freedoms as a Muslim in prison, and they have a lot more privileges as Muslims in prison. So be aware of that. Just be aware of that here in America. Okay. Make sure you know who's standing in front of you. And if you ever can find a radical Muslim, grab them, hold on to them, don't let them go, continue to meet them, and they will more likely want to meet you. Now, everything I've heard about radical Muslims is I don't want to meet them, I want to hide from them, I want to run from them. That's what, that's what the TV tells me, that's what, every time there's a terrorist attack, that's what I hear. So, but you're, you're, say, you're saying I need to go to the radical Muslims. Please do, because it's the, West, the Western world that hates and fears radical Muslims. You and I don't. We love them because they're just like us. They want the same things we want. They're just like us in that they want to worship God. They want to follow God. They want to follow the Quran, which is what I want to do with the Bible and, I, and what I want to do with my God. That's why we have so much in common, and that's why whenever I meet a radical Muslim, I know that I'm going to have six hours of discussion with them. They're, we're usually going to go out and have something to eat, and they're going to pay for it. Usually they do. Sounds like a good deal. And they're the best friends to have. They're the best because they are so serious about their faith. And I want people that are serious and are passionate. And the radical Muslims are really the most serious. And they're the most passionate. And I can understand why the world hates them and world fears them. 
because they're serious. If they are serious about their faith, like we said in the last episode, they are the ones that are the who are blowing up. Not Christians, you notice, except in places like Sri Lanka. They are the ones that are blowing up usually political institutions. A lot of them, if you look at what happened in, in Paris, just look at the choices they made. The Balaklan Theater, the pubs, the restaurants, the dance halls. That's what they want to blow up. These are that's, symbols of the things they hate. Everything they hate is what they're attacking. And that's why it's, uh, look at the ones in, uh, the ones in London. Who were they knifing there? Who were they went? Who did they go into knife when they went into across London Bridge there? That whole marketplace they were going to where the pubs were, where the drinks people were drinking. Those are the people they knife. The guy that drove his his car across the bridge, Westminster Bridge, and tried to get into Parliament. It's the government. He was trying to get in. He almost got into Parliament. He killed five people there before he was finally killed. So these are the. If you look and see their agenda, and you, they usually tell you their agenda before, because they always make a video before they get killed. Mm. And in the video, if you watch the videos, please don't, but uh, I do all the time. If you watch their videos, they make it very clear what they're doing and why they're doing it. And it's always because they're standing against usury, they're standing against pornography, they're standing against drinking alcoholism, they're standing against uh, pol uh, any political structure, they're standing against any economic structure because of getting usury, and they're standing against anything that's military. They usually do not kill Christians unless they think that we are part of the part of the problem. Rarely do they go after Christians, and only a few times have I seen they go after churches. And that's place the only place I have seen them go after churches and Christians is in Pakistan in Rawalpindi, which they went up to the church there. My cousin was in the church. She has. Uh, his wife has shrapnel in her back from that, wow. and he's missing a part of his finger from the shrapnel. Uh, th they also go, the one in Sri Lanka that was not too long ago, uh, where they went after churches. But that, that is unique, and that, there was other agenda going on there. <clears throat> so what's fascinating, they do not attack us physically. They attack Christians theologically. Okay, and so now th this, this, this is, is where good. we come in. This is more American. That's where they. That's why we need to engage them, and that's why, as we said in the last episodes, the major speakers, the great, the major polemicists, those who are attacking uh, on the airwaves, are almost uniquely attacking Christianity, and we haven't picked up on that. I remember back in 2006, there was a group in London who works with YouTube, and uh, they went up on YouTube. Remember, the YouTube was only invented in 2005, so yeah. this is a year after it was invented. And they wanted to find out how many videos they could find they were attacking Christianity. And they found 43,000. So they wanted to find out how many videos were up there that were attacking Islam. 16. 16 versus 43,000. What does that seem to tell you? Well, it seems to me that we're very, we're, we do not know how to attack, and we have, we have very, and there's a reason for that because there's no, there's no school or there's no curriculum. There's not even any book on Islamic polemics. We're the first ones to do it. We're making it. We're creating it by the seat of our pants because we have nothing to which to follow, and that's why Fander and Fander Course uh, Apologetics is the only one that's actually training people up in Islamic apologetics. So you have a course polemics, called Fander. Course of apologetics. Okay, and so this is something a person can access. You can do it online. You can you can be anywhere in the world. It comes to you. We use Zoom webinar. Okay, and how do how do I find that? Well, you just go uh, email courses c o u r s e s at fander p f a n d e r dot u k. Sorry, fander dot u k. I forgot about that. So it's courses. It's like in fander course c o u r s e s at p f a n d e r dot u k. 
Okay, that's it. All right, so... Now that starts from September and goes to April, and we're the only course that actually trains you up in Islamic apologetics and Islamic polemics, and it comes right to your computer. You can be anywhere in the world, and you don't even have to watch, listen to it live. It's on Tuesdays, Tuesday mornings. Uh, here in California, it'll be uh, about six o'clock oh, so in the morning. So there's there's something you're watching live. You're, you're part, watching part live of the class, and it's the same stuff that uh, I'm part of it. I I've been uh, I helped start it. Beth Grove is also another teacher, and Dr. Paul Blackham is another teacher, and uh, this is the only way we can actually train and teach polemics. Now I am teaching it here at Veritas Seminary this week. That's the only other place that's actually allowing me to teach Islamic polemics, but because of the fact that the vast majority of Muslims here are not polemical. It's not really material. What do you, what do you mean this by is, that they're not polemical? They're not attacking Christianity here. Okay. I don't see anybody attacking Christianity. I don't see anybody up there, any big names. All the big names are in Britain. Okay. Look at all the names. I mean, you know, all the names are Indian subcontinent people. They're all from India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh. And that includes Zakir Naik out of Bombay. He's the most prolific. Now you have Shabir Ali, who is uh, their best debater. He lives in Toronto, but he does all his work on YouTube. He does. Uh, he has. Uh, I've debated him six times, and he is from India as well. His family is from India. Then you have uh, Ahmadidat, who has an awful lot of. Not, he was never on YouTube, but his he has an awful lot of these pamphlets, written in every language, everywhere I go in the Muslim world. I see his pamphlets, and they're all against the Trinity, the, the divinity of Jesus, the authority of Scripture, the Pauline paradigm. The, cultural mandate, you name it, he has so many. He wasn't a great thinker himself, but he was very much a good communicator. And uh, he would get thousands, tens of thousands of people would come to his meetings. So uh, even though there's not a lot of Muslims attacking Christianity, I do know here that- Here in America. Here in America. All over the world, yes, but not here in America. Right, here in America. But I do know that Christians still do get questions that are hard for them to answer or, or understand here in America. And so one, one of them, one, one issue that comes up would be just the name Allah. So when I was in Sudan, I remember being in a church and I was talking to a Christian and through kind of some broken English, he would, this Christian was using the word Allah to refer to God. And I just kind of always remember that that was interesting. And then I get back to America and I'm, I'm talking to um, a Muslim and they're using the, the name Allah, and basically what they're saying is uh, Allah is just another name of God. That's kind of what, what they're saying. So, so Are they saying that we share the same God? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, they're saying this is what you need to do. Anybody, whether it's a missionary or a Christian in Sudan, or whether it's a Muslim here in the United States, which most of them will say this, that we share the same God, reach out your hand and shake theirs. Now, you're going to be Abdul now. Abdul, you okay. just told me that we share the same God. God bless you, Abdul. I'm so happy that you have finally admitted after 1400 years that Allah of the Quran entered time and space and was walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. I'm so glad that your Allah of the Quran is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Hey, wait a minute. That's not... Hold on. You said that we share the same God. Finally, you have admitted after all of our talks that Allah died on the cross and rose again and that Allah has a son. God bless you. It's taken us 1400 years for you to finally admit that. That's great. Now, what have I done? You've, rev you've, you've reversed it. I've done two things. You've, show you've showed them that they absolutely do not believe that. Okay, I've done two things. First uh -huh. of all, I've defined who my God is, quickly. Mm -hmm. And I've defined the four areas that we disagree with Islam, right there, in one fell swoop. Because as for all Muslims, their biggest problem with Christianity is not really Donald Trump, it's not really America, it's not really our military. Right. The biggest problem with Christianity is that Jesus is God. Mm -hmm. Jesus cannot be God. And Jesus cannot be one of three. 
So it comes down to him and Jesus or God have never, can never enter time and space because Allah must always be other, totally other. He's finite. I mean, he's infinite. How could he become finite? That would take away his infiniteness. It would destroy him. Uh, it would it would uh, actually destroy his character, destroy everything about him. Yeah. And so therefore, they always say, how can, he, how can you square a circle? It's absolutely impossible for God who is infinite to become human who is finite. How can he be corrupted like us? God who is incorruptible cannot be corrupted. And the third thing is no God would ever let someone kill him. Hmm. First of all, he can't become a man. But how can you ever kill God? God, can, God is infinite. He's immortal. How are you suggesting he could be killed? On, and on the cross of all things. And then fourthly, if God is totally other, infinite, how can he have a son? God is not a human to have a son. That means he'd have to impregnate a woman, have sex with a woman. Just the thought of that makes him shudder. So can you see those are the four things that we've got to confront? And I've done it real quickly in just, what, 10 seconds? Because what I've said to him is, my God is those four things. My God can enter time and space anytime he wants. So you've, you've confronted those things in one fell swoop. How do you how do you answer those? Well, four, that's why then, then I then, then I'm ready to preach the gospel now. See okay. what I've also done is I set the agenda to now say, let me tell you why those are important to me. If you're saying that God cannot enter time and space, if you're saying that He is truly infinite, that He is truly omnipotent, He is truly Akbar, and that's what you're always saying, Allahu Akbar, He is the greater. Then how how in the world can God be that great and yet can take on cannot take on human form? You've just taken away his omnipotence. Hmm. You've just taken away his greatness. And you certainly know he's no longer Akbar to me because my God can become a man anytime he wants. If God truly couldn't do anything, he could do that. He That'd could be become a man. That'd be simple for him to do. Yeah. For heaven's sake, would you stop, would you stop limiting God? Right. Don't you limit God? Because hmm. just your reaction, your response says that you're doing the very thing you're claiming I'm doing. My God can take on any form he wants and I'll show it from your own Quran that this is true. Take a look in chapter 20 of your Quran. Verse 10, Moses is there in the, he looks in the distance, he sees a fire. He goes to investigate. As he gets to the fire, he notices it's a burning bush that's not consumed. And as he gets close to it, suddenly the voice from the, in the bush comes out and says, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Now, ask your Muslim friend, holy ground. Can any ground be holy without God? If it's holy, that means God's there, right? This is not holy. Where we are, only where God is can it be holy. Right, right. That makes sense. So is God in that bush? They'll start to look and say, well, maybe the presence. Okay, hold on a minute. Okay, let's just go to verse 12. Because then the voice goes on and says, truly, this is Allah who is speaking to you. Proving that that voice in the bush is Allah. So this, now, this, Is that Allah? Can anybody take on the name of Allah but God himself? This account is in the Quran? This is in the Quran, chapter 20. Verse 10, 11, and 12. So there's there's Bible stories and Bible accounts that are in the Quran. In some, some are authentic, some way. are not, but this one is an authentic one because huh. this comes right out of Exodus 3. They've lifted it from the Bible, and whenever you take and borrow a, Bible, a story from the Bible, be careful because if you take the story, you've got to take the meaning with it. That's right. Do not borrow from our Bible unless you're going to realize because that story is very clear that God is in that bush. That is true. And Moses knew he was speaking with God. He was face to face with God, and God was telling him to go down to Egypt. And he didn't want to go. And that's where he gave him his name as well. But let's come back to this story in the Quran because if that is the case, see how they answer. You'll see the gears start to turn. They realize they're in a dilemma. Because if they say that can't be God, that, or that this is, this, this is like, no, that can't be God, has to be, they're going to have to tear those verses out. Because it's very clear in verse 10 and verse 12 that that is God. Yeah. Only where God is, is it holy? And only God can take, use his own name and claim to be God. So if they're going to say, okay, that is God, he's in that bush, then say, well, where is that bush? Is it on earth? 
course it is. Moses is there. So therefore, your Quran is suggesting that in 1400 B.C., at one time in history, God did enter time and space, came into the earth, didn't have to come as a human form. He was a, he was a form of a burning bush, which means if he can do so in 1400 B.C., then why are you having problems believing that he could do so 2,000 years ago, which suggests to me that your God of the Quran can enter time and space, proving that you've got a bigger God than you're even giving credit to. But that's because Moses told you this. Why don't you listen to what Moses then says next? Because then you we can then you can just move right on to there. Because then from there on you can ask what did God then do next? He then yeah. gave him his personal name. He gave him his holy name. Now where's that name in the Quran? Why is it Muhammad did not knew that know that name? And how could he be a prophet? He doesn't even know God's name. How could any prophet? In fact, why do you think Moses wanted that name? So when he went down to Egypt, the Israelites would know what God he represented. If it was important enough to Moses, don't you think it should be important enough to Muhammad? And yet, tell me, Yahweh, that name that God gave there in Exodus 3, in 1400 B.C., show me that name anywhere in the Quran. Show me it anywhere on Muhammad's lips. Now let's go to the next question, the next section, and that is, is God one? Or is God God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Right, they cannot stand the Trinity. They cannot. And, they, and you can see, it's not that they cannot stand the Trinity. Why do you think they always ask you that first? It's not that they can't understand it. They think that that's our weakest, it is, it is our weakest defense. Christians don't understand the Trinity. We don't understand it and we don't know how to defend it. Right. To say nothing of the fact, we don't even know how to define it. How many Christians have heard, how many Christians came to Jesus Christ, were converted because of the Trinity? Do you know of any? No. How many Muslims or anybody has converted to Christianity because of the Trinity? It's not something that we would, um, uh, introduce in our in our first get-go because right. it I don't see any in fact that's the reason why Muslims always throw at it because they know that Christians are not taught much about it where we how many times have you heard a sermon on the Trinity to, uh, to how to defend it or define it right you just don't hear it most pastors walk away from it yeah. so that's why they usually always introduce it knowing that this is a chink in your armor right and it's the biggest chink now the way to answer that and this is the problem that a lot of Christians have. They try to answer it by using other objects to, to, uh, to give an um, example of it. They use water, steam, and ice, or I'm a yeah. father, I'm a son, I'm a uh, brother at the same time. Right. Without thinking, in every case, you're falling into a trap. Mm -hmm. You're doing exactly what Islam thinks Christianity is saying. That is, Jesus is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all in one form. Right. That's called civilianism. That's yeah. a heresy. And in every object you're going to use, that water, steam, and ice, it's all the same entity. It's all there at one time, but it changes depending on um, what's happening around it. Can you see and again understand then why we have to be careful how we define? Just don't even use any objects. Right. They're all going to be heretical. Yeah. And a clever Muslim will hang you on it. So what I do is I say, listen, I don't want to sit there and tell you what my belief is, or I want to tell you what my experience is, or what my opinion is on this. Let's go and see what God says about the Trinity. Why don't go to open the Bible? That's the safest place to go. Yeah. Also, it's what we should do about everything. If we always need to go back to Scripture, then we're on safe ground, aren't we? Rather than us trying to defend ourselves, let's let Jesus defend ourselves. See how they respond to that. Because right. that's how you know whether or not you're going to have a good discussion or not. If they say, oh, okay, let's, let's see what the Scripture says, then you've got a good Bible study in front of you. But make sure you know where you're going to go then. Yeah. Start with Genesis 1.1. Go to Genesis 1.26. Go to Deuteronomy 6.4. Go to... Um, Exodus 33, I mean, there's so many, there's so many, start with the Old Testament, there are so many chapters where you can define the Trinity. Don't even go to the New Testament, start with the Old Testament and show that it's pervasive right through the Old Testament. 
What you're going to find out is that Muslims do understand this. They do know what we're talking about. They actually are not as dumb as we as they look. I mean, is that they're trying to come across? Mm -hmm. They're not that thick. It's not that they don't understand it. It's that they don't want to admit that this actually does make sense, and that they'll give corollary questions. Well, if God, if Jesus is God, then who's running the universe? Yeah. Well, he's down here. Again, because they believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all in Jesus. And he's on earth. Therefore, who's running the universe that should be there? That's where you can really help them with the Trinity. Listen, while God, Jesus is God, who is the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit's still there running the universe with the power of God the Father. But it's the Holy Spirit who is actually his function to do that. So that's all more defines exactly. But then throw it right back on their lap again. All right. Well, uh, while God was there in that burning bush that we just talked about, speaking to Moses, who's running the universe? <laughs> They've so, got the same problem. So, so many of their attacks, I'd say most of their attacks on the Trinity basically come from a misunderstanding of the Trinity in the first place. They're, they're not, you know, just like you said, that question, if Jesus is on earth, who's running, who's, who's running the show in heaven? That's, that's a simple misunderstanding of the Trinity in the first place. And so for a Christian to go down that road and try to figure that out, it just shows that the Christian doesn't understand the Trinity either. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we need to be careful that we don't get into an awful lot of theologizing because you get the more sophisticated you get that you think you're being sophisticated, right. it may meet your needs, but it doesn't meet the needs of the person yeah. that's listening to you because they don't even understand the first word you're talking about. That's Keep right. it simple. Keep it dumb. That's dumb right. it down so they, they can they can see they can follow your your sense of logic because for most Muslims, they've not even looked at their problem with the Trinity. Look at their Quran, chapter 50, verse 16, says that the the Spirit of God, the Ru'Allah, Allah, is as close to you as your juggler vein. The Spirit is God. Well, what's he doing next to your juggler vein? Because your juggler vein's on earth. Who's running the universe while the Spirit of God's on hmm. you? And if he's here next to your juggler vein and Allah is in heaven, then does that not, in, 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 uh, does that not suggest uh, duality right there? There's two gods right there. <laughs> How are you going to defend that? Yeah. Get one step further. When you go to chapter 85, verse 22 in the Quran, it says that the Quran is the word of God, which is derived from these tablets that have always, these preserved tablets that have always existed. They are eternal. So the, the Quran came from a, a source that's eternal. It's eternal. And that's what, what Jibril's function was, to take it from the source and bring it to Muhammad. Take it from the source and bring it to Muhammad over 22 years. But that source, those tablets, are co-eternal with God. Hold on a minute. I thought God was one. How can you have some an inanimate object co-eternal with them? Ooh, put that under your hat. Huh. Try to define defend that one. In 40 years, I've never heard a Muslim defend they that. They don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with that. And Christ, they didn't even know what to do with that in the 10th century when a group of Muthazalites who were a group of, of Muslims who were actually investigating and theologizing about it in the courts of, of Baghdad, they came up with this problem. They said, how can you have a word of God co-eternal with God? Because wow. that would suggest that something else is also co-eternal alongside God. And the Qajarites, who were the, who were the rulers at that time, they shut down the Muthazalites, killed every one of them and then shut down any, what they call ijtihad, which means interpretation of scripture from then on in, until it was reopened in uh, uh, 1905 by Muhammad Abdu mm -hmm. in Egypt, so that now they can now reinterpret, they can now un investigate that verse. But for a thousand years, no one could investigate that verse because the Muthazalites were asking a perfectly legitimate question, right. which now I can ask of the Muslims today. <laughs> what are you going to do with chapter 85, verse 22? What are you going to do with chapter 50, verse 16? What are you going to do with chapter 13, verse 15, which is where, where, there's the Trinity right there in the Quran. And that's a Trinity I would never want to defend. 
Thank God we don't have that hopeless. Or what about chapter 5, verse 116, where God asked Jesus, is it true that you and your mother are to be worshipped as God? Therefore, in inculcating and also incorporating Mary as part of the Trinity. So I've heard What's this, Mary doing there? So I've, I've, I've heard this before. So for the, the Muslim, their definition or their view of the Trinity, at least for a lot of, a lot of Muslims, they believe that the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and Mary. Mary. God the Father, Mary the Mother, Jesus the Son. And that's from chapter six, that's from chapter five, verse one one six. That's just wild. Yeah, you can see why they're confused because the Quran tells, gets, gets that confused. Yeah. So whoever wrote the Quran had not really ever looked at the Bible or talked to any Christians. So you've gone you've gone through two of your points on what you, on what you. Then the third one, and this okay. is probably the most important one. If Allah truly is the same God as my God, that means He had to have died and rose again. And you know, as a Muslim that God never dies. And the Quran is very clear that Jesus, even Jesus never died. In chapter four, verse 157 of the Quran, it says, for they killed him not, they thought it was so, another was given his image. Truly, he was not crucified, was he not crucified? So it's adamant that the, that Jesus was not crucified. From the Muslim point of view. Another man was crucified, someone did die, but it wasn't Jesus. Right. Another man that Allah gave his uh, face to. Now, that, that one you can really run with. He gave the face of Jesus to another, another man. man. Okay, that's, and that that's man in the died Quran. in his place. Okay. So that's why all the disciples thought that Jesus had died. Because they saw Jesus there. They saw him on the cross. They assumed it was Jesus. They didn't realize that Allah had, had actually duped them. And for 600 years, never told anybody. You know, this is so crazy. I mean, you, Christians hear this stuff and they're just like, what? But what they don't understand is that we're talking about people, this is their holy book, they've grown up reading this, this is, this is what they've been listening to or, or reading their whole life. And so it's normal to them. So they're coming from a place where saying, you Christians believe that the Trinity, Trinity is a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, it's actually Mary. You, you Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross? No, actually God put Jesus' face on another man, and that's the guy who died on the cross. It's, it's wild. Can, can you see how many, there's an awful lot of problems with that? Just yeah. unpack that a little bit. I mean, you're already seeing it's wild. Stop it now. I have five problems right there. Let me give them real quickly, the five problems I have okay. with that. Number one, if that is so, then let's look at the Quran and see if the Quran's consistent on that. In chapter 4, 157, it's very clear he did not die. But in chapter 19, verse 33, it's very clear that Jesus him, himself said that he was going to die as a child. Blessed be me. The day I was born, the day I die, this is the in day the Quran. I rise again. This is in the Quran, chapter 19, verse 33. That confronts chapter 4, 157. When Muslims will try to say, no, 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 Jesus is talking about the future. That is true because he's a child. He's still alive. He's not dead yet. He's talking about the future. And they say, no, 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 this is the second coming, when it comes a second time. No, it isn't, because you look at verse 15 in that same chapter, it says exactly the same thing about John the Baptist. Yeah, yeah, blessed be he, the day he was born, the day he dies, and the day he rises again. Are you suggesting that John the Baptist is going to come in the future and die and rise again? You can't have it both ways. So you have to be consistent. Now, you also can go to chapter 3, verse 55, and chapter 5, verse 117, because in both those places, you will find Allah speaking to Jesus and saying, saying to him, I will mutawafika, that in, uh, which in Arabic means I will cause you to die. Now in the English translation, it has been changed to I will cause you to sleep. No Arab speaker, any Arab speaker would agree with that. The translation. The translation is, a, this is what we call an apocryphal translation. Okay. This is an apologetical translations. This is a hopeless translation. And it was only changed to sleep in the 1930s by a Pakistani who didn't know Arabic that well named Yusuf Ali. 
Now all of them have now changed because they realize that chapter 3 verse 55 and chapter 5 verse 117 contradict chapter 4 verse 157. So that's the first problem. Well the other problem I, I see right off the bat is they're basically saying that God deceived people. Ah, that's the best one. That God, God that's number five of my five. Basically tricked people. What kind of God takes the image, puts it on another man's face, and then doesn't tell anybody for 600 years. Then he goes down and he says, well, let me tell this, this Arab merchant who can't read or write the real story. But more than that, what about the man on the what about Jesus himself who did not get on the cross, let another man die in his place, three days later goes into the upper room, introduces himself as the man who did die, and then a week later when Thomas still doubted him, he showed the holes in his hands and his feet. What kind of prophet dupes lies like that? That's so, deception. That's so deceit. Jesus, who they call a prophet, is now a deceiving prophet who let another man but and die. The God and is an immoral God. Wow. And I want nothing to do with that God, nor anything to do with that Jesus. He's not my Jesus. He's not my God. All the more reason why we don't share the same God. My God never deceives like that. But then there's other problems too. What are you going to do with the historical record? Look at the historical record that all supports the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Right. Take a look at Thallus and Phlegon, who are Greek historians that are debating this event in 52 AD. That's just 20 years after Christ's death. They're debating it amongst themselves, and they're saying that when this man Jesus died, the earth shook and the sun went dark, supporting what the Matthew account says. That's only 20 years after his death. They were not Christians. They had no reason to support that. Tacitus, who hated Christians, had nothing good to say about Christians. None of those guys brought up uh, him having a fake face or, or not being... Not at all. Well, put it the way, they, they weren't there, so maybe they, went, they weren't actually next to Jesus to know whether that's true or not. But Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, he not only talks about the death of Jesus, he mentions when it happened during the time of Pontius Pilate, on Pontius Pilate under the authority of Tiberius. That's why we know the date was 33 AD because of Tacitus. So these are all sources outside of the Bible. These are outside. Josephus would be the third one and he's a Jewish historian who talks about the death of Jesus. So there you have Greek, Roman, and Jewish sources. There, none of them are Christians who all support. But talk about, what do you mean they didn't see his face? What about John? Wasn't he at the foot of the cross? Huh. Wouldn't he have known who Jesus was? You would think. If he would have been with him for three years, what about Mary? Wasn't she at the foot of the cross as well? Wouldn't a mother know her own son's face? And so would the Muslims say, well, God did a really good job of putting that fake face on Okay, what about the man on the cross? You have a new face. You know it's not you. Wouldn't you have said something about it? I would have. <laughs> and look and see what that man on the cross did say. Look and see. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he would be into more forgiving than Jesus. Into your hands I, forgive, I, I give to my spirit. That is not a man who is duped. That is not a man who right. should not have been there. Every one of those seven sayings that we see wow. on the cross are absolutely spot on for the Jesus I know. So if you, you know, and here's another one. Here's a theological problem. In chapter 53, verse 38, in chapter 6, verse 164, in the Quran, it says that no one can take on the sin of another. No one can take on the guilt of another. Hmm. If that is so, then what is God putting the face uh, on another man but letting him take on the guilt of Jesus? Yeah, that's exactly, that's a theological that's exactly what, he was, but what he was doing if that happened. So you can see, Plato, I mean, there's, I've given you five reasons why I have a problem with the crucifixion. Yeah. Three of them are from the Quran itself. One, one is of those is enough. And one is moral. <laughs> yeah, one problem is enough. You got five. Now so we get to the last, the fourth thing. And the okay. fourth thing is Son of God. Mm -hmm. And this is a one that I, that I have to, I have to admit, we as Christians have really fallen flat on. Because most Christians don't realize the importance of Jesus being called Son of God. 
If you want to know why the Son of God is so important, why is it that Muslims do not want him to be Son of God, and why they confront us all the time? How can God have a son? Which is a little odd, since in chapter 39, verse 4, it says very clearly that if God so had willed it, he could have a son. That's in the Quran. That's in the Quran. Okay. The Quran says very clearly he could have a son. And that I'll come back to, because that's a real problem for me. I want to put it right back in the Muslim's lap and say, wait, you're saying he can't have a son, but then the Quran says he can. So now you tell me. Explain that to me and define how can Allah, who is omnipotent and never enters time and space and is not even does not take on human form, how can he have a son? Bingo. Now you tell me with that. Now they've got to wrestle with the same thing. They've got to wrestle with the same thing. It's in their Quran. But let's get back to the Son of God issue because the Son of God issue is absolutely important because that is a divine name right there. That's a divine title. And that's why Caiaphas, there in the Sanhedrin, in chapter 26 of Matthew, he turns to Jesus and asks him those two questions. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Not a Son of God. You're a Son of God. I'm a Son of God. But the Son of God, definite article, means the one that they're waiting for. They're, every Jew is waiting for this Son of God. And he knew that whoever was the Son of God would also have to inherit everything that the Father inherit, which means he would have to inherit his divinity. And that's why they always knew that the Son of God was a divine name. That's why when Jesus then agreed that he was, and then he went on and gave a third title, and you shall see the Son of Man coming in the cloud, referring to Jack, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, he was actually saying, I'm that Son of God. I am that God too. I'm the, all four, three of these are divine titles. Look at the reaction of Caiaphas. He tore his robe, turned towards the Sanhedrin. What further proof do you need? This man has blasphemed. Because he was daring to use three of the four major divine titles. The fourth one would be Yahweh itself. And that's one he claimed he declared very clearly in John chapter 8, verse 58 in the temple, where he would have had spoken in Hebrew, of course. Though it's written in Greek, he would have been speaking in Hebrew, mm -hmm. meaning the temple. And when he said before Abraham was, I am Yahweh, look at the reaction of the Jews again. They pick up stones to stone him. Because yeah. he was daring to not only pronounce the the holy name of God. He was claiming it for himself. And that's the only reason you should be stoned. So if you look and see why this is so important to God himself, why in the world are we, especially Wycliffe translators, if there are any Wycliffe translators listening to me right now, why is Wycliffe so intent on taking out any reference to Son of God in the New Testament? Oh, they are. You didn't know about this? No, I didn't know about this. Since 2008, 2009, they've been doing this. They've been going to all wow. the Muslim translation languages, the, uh, the Muslim languages, and they've been taking out any filial language, any reference to God the Father, and any reference to God the Son. So why, why are they, what's their purpose for Because this, this is a stumbling block for Muslims. Well, of they course want, it is. It goes against what they believe. It makes no sense. Uh, because Wycliffe translators don't have theology degrees. Wow. We, um, we confronted them in 2009 when we heard about it. They're doing this to 30 languages, in 30 languages, which are already have translations. They're lifting out any oh, reference to God, lifting out any reference to God the Father. So let me give you an example. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. This is the Great Commissioning. Yeah. Jesus says, go into the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right. Now, you, have, you don't have a problem with that, and that to you, you're talking about God. The Trinity, well, well, God Christ, the Father. Christians ever since the time of Christ doesn't, don't have a problem with that. That's the that's, Trinitarian that's, formula that's right there. That's the Great Commission. So what they're doing is they're saying that this needs to be changed to go into the world cleansing with water. In other words, having ablutions before you go into a mosque in the name of Allah, His Messiah, and His Holy Spirit. Wow. Now what have they done? That's horrible. They've given okay, the Bible why over is that to, horrible? They've given the Bible over to Islam. They're, but they're putting it from... Why is that horrible for a Muslim? 
in a, in a Muslim context? Because it, now, now, now they don't have to deal with the Son of God. Like that's, that's not just Son of God. What, who, what have they done by replacing Son of God with the Messiah? What have they done? And this is what most Christians don't know about. Most Americans don't know this. And it's understandable because you need to know Islam to understand why that is even more endemic. For a Muslim, they will be clapping if you said this. They will probably pay for those translations. Because for 1400 years, every Muslim who has read the Quran knows that the human title for Issa in the Quran is Al-Masihu, the Messiah. That's his human title. Has always been his human title. So when you take Son of God out, which then suggests that he has to be God, because only, only God, he would have the same inheritance as God the Father. He'd take everything the Father would give him. That would mean his divinity as well. And you replace it with the Messiah, he then becomes the Quranic Jesus, Issa. That's found 11 times in the Quran. The title uniquely reserved for Issa. So to them, it's, it's proof that the Bible has had it wrong all these years and that the Muslim version of who they say is Jesus, Issa, that's actually the right one. He's now human. He's no longer God. Oh, wow. You've demoted him to his humanity, which is what they love. Wow. They've been asking us that's to demote horrible. him. They've been asking us to get, him, get his divinity out yeah. of there. By taking Allah, which is the God that they want to hear us to talk about, because God the Father is anathema to them. How can he take on human uh, uh, description? He yeah. is not Father. He has nothing to do with Father. He is Allah. Though we've given them that already, the most demeaning part, though, is to take his uh, sonship out and replace it with Messiah. Or the other ones are using his representative of God and his Holy Spirit. So can you see in one swoop, in one fell swoop, by taking Son of God out, they have demoted his divinity and brought him back to his humanity. Yeah. No wonder they love it. No wonder they're paying for it. No wonder Wycliffe has no idea what they've done. So we went to ask, we went to the leadership of Wycliffe and we had a, we had a meeting with them. Their headquarters are in England. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ida Glasser, who is at Oxford University, has, has a PhD in both theology and Islamics. So she's the best equipped. I was there, and she and I asked them. We sat at the table with them in front of about 30 other people listening. These were the six of the leaders. I can't give you their names. And we said, why did you take, take Son of God out and replace it in the, in, the, in the Great Commissioning with Messiah? They said, well, this makes sense because he is the Messiah. That's his title in the Quran. It makes sense that we should do that. She says, do you know what Son of God means? I said, well, he's not the biological Son of God. We know that. That's, not, that's a problem for us as, as Christians as well. She says, how many of you have theology degrees? Not one of them raised their hands. How many of you had Islamic degrees? Not one of them raised their hands. She says, well, where are your degrees in? Linguistics. How can you translate the Bible, a theological book, and all you do is apply linguistic analysis to it? Because the linguistic analysis, the number one cardinal rule in linguistic analysis is what they call dynamic equivalence. Are you familiar with this term? No. When you go to any other language, as a translator, you look for the equivalent of that word. If it's not already in that word, if there's a word like God, you look for the equivalent in that language. That's linguistic analysis. If you go and it says, as, but your, your, your sins are, you must eradicate your sins, you are as white as snow. And you go to a place like Saudi Arabia where there has never been snow, and they don't have a word for snow, you need to find an equivalent. So you say, white as white sand. You put sand there. Okay. Okay. So you find a diamond, which makes sense. And so that all that flies With out categories the that are not theological. Yeah. But it does make no sense if you don't even know what the theological term is to begin with. <laughs> and if none of these translators knew what Son of God meant, that this is a divine term, wow. that this is not biological. In fact, in English, it does sound biological to us, doesn't it? Sure. Because we don't have any other, we don't have any other term for Son. 
In Arabic, they do. There are two words for sonship in Arabic, walid and ibn. Ibn, ibn is actually the correct term. Ibn means who anybody, anybody could be the son of so-and-so if they're related to them. So you'll find if you go all over the Muslim, all over the world, except for America, the English-speaking world, you'll, I get introduced to people, oh, this is my son. It's not his biological son. He's his relative, or he's a good friend. So I could be the son of my dad, my grandfather, or, my or uncle. Where are you from? Where am I from? Yeah. From uh, California. Are you the son of California? Uh, of course you are. Yeah, I guess so in a sense. Please say yes, otherwise you're not very patriotic. I'm a son of California. You're a son of California, and I see only Americans have this problem. I talk this to anybody else. Yeah. Are you for, are you a son of Beirut, or are you, are you the son of Pakistan? Oh, yes, I'm a son of Pakistan. Right. Why do they say no, that? that makes sense, yeah. They're not born from Pakistan. There's no biological relationship with them in Pakistan, right. or any more biological relationship with you in California. What you're saying is, I belong. I inherit everything that California right. gives me as a California citizen. That means it has nothing to do with biological. So Ibn incorporates that, accommodates that. Walid, however, if you are the Walid of so-and-so, that means you are the direct biological son of that person. So when you look at the Quran in chapter 2, verse 177, it says that a traveler, someone who's going from one place to another, is a Ibn ul-Sibili, a son of the road. Yeah. No token, uh, no uh, Muslim reading that would think that that traveler was born from the ground of the road. There's no biological relationship whatsoever. So they don't have a problem in Arabic with it. Why do we have such a problem? Because our English does not accommodate it, and that's why we've had to cut. We have we've had to uh, expand sonship to mean inheritance. And that's why when I ask you, are you the son of California? Yes, I'm the son of California. We understand what that means immediately without having to get another word to t to define that. So. If this is a problem for Wycliffe translators, then I would suggest that this is their problem. Leave it at home. Yeah. And therefore, keep sonship in there and then put it in the footnotes as to what it means. So, so Jay, for the sake of time, you're so uh, well-versed on this. I asked you one, one question on, is Allah the, the name for God? And I got, got four different major four areas. Different major these, areas which have is, you noticed, though? Which I love. Eddie, these are the four major things that every Christian yeah, should know. absolutely. All right, so Jay, you've given us four areas, four things that you're saying are the, are the big four that... These are the biggies. Okay. These are the big ones. And it all came out of just one little question where you were saying that we share the same God. Yeah. That's why take those four, use them, and then work and just stick to them and preach the gospel. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to this podcast as many times as I can until I get those four things in my mind. And, and you know, I think that's a... A great starting point just for Christians to... Just to repeat it real quickly, God yeah. does not enter time and space if He's Allah. He does not, He is not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Allah never dies on the cross and Allah does not have a son. Our Son of God has always been the Son of God, didn't become the Son of God, will always be the Son of God. That is not, that is a title to define His relationship with the Father, with, which is relational. And this is the other thing you can end with, this is why I love it. If our God is relational, has always been relational from the very beginning, and we're made in His image, as it says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we're made in His image, therefore we're relational, then how can Muslims understand their relationship? How can they understand what they are as humans if their God is monad, one? And where did that relationship come from if it's not within the God to begin with? So when you look at, when you look at this God, Allah, that you, we started this whole conversation with, He is nothing more than a monad, one. Yet every time you hear his name, Bismillah al-Rahman al-Rahim, whenever they use his name at the very beginning, the first verse of the Quran, that's the Bismillah, that's the introduction of who the God is, that's the God. He is the al-Rahman al-Rahim, he is the compassionate one, the merciful one, right? Mm -hmm. 
Past the Muslims, hold on. Mercy and compassion, by definition, require an object. But your God is one. So where is the object of his mercy and compassion before Adam and Eve were created? Ooh, tu, 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 tu. How could he have always been loved? How could he be loving? How could he be loving? Because his other name, one of the most common names is Al-Wadud. He is the loving one. How could he be loving? By definition, love requires an object. Now, in the tri triune view of God, our God is always God. The Father is always God. God the Son. God the Son has always loved God the Holy Spirit. That is where the relationship has always been percolating. Right. Eternally, it's been there. So when we're made in His image, we're loving, we're compassionate, we're merciful. Therefore, those words, those names that you have for your God can only make sense in a dry context. That's great. Which means you've got to come on back to us to even understand what those words mean. To understand who you are as a social animal, you've got to come back to us. Because that could have only come from a relational God. Allah has never been relational. So where'd you get it from? How did you get it? Why'd you come on home? Come on home. Well, if you are a Muslim and you're listening to this out of curiosity, um, I would just encourage you to go over to Jay's YouTube page. Tell us that YouTube. P-F-A-N-D-E-R-F-I-L-M-S. Pfander Films, named after Dr. Carl Pfander. Uh, and it's there on YouTube. It ha we have about 25,000 subscribers. We'd love to have as many more if any of you do come up and engage because all of you just, I put up a new video about approximately every three days, a new video's up there. And uh, there's always the comments there. Now, if you uh, don't have the time to look at the video, in the description box, I write out everything that's in that video. So the synopsis of everything in that video in the description box. Watch the video first so you see what I'm saying and then take the description and then actually memorize the material with all the footnotes, I'm sorry, with all the references that are there in the description box. So whether you are a Muslim or a Christian, I highly suggest you get over to that YouTube page and just uh, learn as much about this as you can. So Jay, it's been a pleasure talking to you. God and you. I just need to remember that next time I shake your hand, I'm gonna get a whole lot of information, so. Well, if you ask these kind of questions, <laughs> these are the right kind of questions. <laughs> All right. right. You've asked great questions and these are foundational. And pretty much what we've heard today, this is those four things that we've spent yeah. this last episode on are probably the most important for understanding how to engage Muslims in verbally and also how to introduce the gospel to them. Well, thank you so much. Okay, just a few closing thoughts. If you have not read the book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White, you really need to. If you're a Christian, you should understand the Trinity at least a little bit. And if you read that book, you're going to understand it a lot better than you do now. If you're an atheist or a Muslim, you should get the book too. Why not? Might as well. You listen to this podcast, why not read a Christian book? Round out your life. If you like this podcast and want others to hear it, Please share it on your social media and give it a quick review. Go over to iTunes or whatever your podcast source is and just give it a review. This makes Roman's Road more visible and seeing is the preliminary step to clicking and then comes the listening. And that's just how the internet works. Okay, I'm done. Thanks for listening to Roman's Road. If you want to learn how to evangelize, check out my book, Search and Rescue, available at eddyroman.com. On my website, you'll also find videos and other things to encourage you to preach the gospel to your friends and family. That's eddyroman.com. See you next time. The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting scripture 
The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 2911 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area.